0: I Welcome, don't know. thank you, to another session of PhDivs. My
1: name is Liz Wayne. and I'm Zainya, and we have a very special guest with us today, representing the social sciences. We have Nadia Cherniak. Yay. Hi, Yay.
0: glad to be here. I'm um, Dr. Nadia.
1: Oh yes, oh, Nadia. Yes, you. she's a she's a flu- full-fledged Ph. Diva. This <laughs>
0: is true. Whereas we are aspiring.
1: Yeah, well, but as of this recording, Liz will be defending next week.
0: I know. On
1: Wednesday. Right? Yeah, so stay tuned to hear what happens.
0: Yeah, I'd love to tell you about that story, and I hope I actually get some sleep soon.
1: Yeah, um, but anyways, stressful. how about, Nadia, tell us a little bit about what department you've been affiliated with, um, and what your research is about. Sure. And Liz, I'd just like to add that Nadia, like Liz, has had her research made famous by the Ooh. mainstream news. Uh, yes, that did happen. Yes. Once.
0: Look at her, like, yeah, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Google me, Google me.
2: No, the cor- Cornell does does a good job. I think I I don't know what your experience was, Liz, of of trying to push um, some of their own research out there and trying to get it into the media. So I am to answer your question. Mm-hmm. I am a developmental psychologist. I got my PhD here at Cornell from the Cornell Department of Human Development, and I have been in the Boston area um, doing a postdoc for the last year. Um, actually. I've been working at a few different universities doing kind of half time postdocs for a little while. Now I'm based in Boston University. And my research is in early childhood cognitive development. So I study how children acquire um, concepts. Um, I also study um, how they learn to be pro social and which types of exper- early experiences promote generosity in kids um, and adults. But really, I think a lot of what I study is philosophical questions like what does morality mean and what does it depend on and so i use kids as kind of my sample population yeah, i think you have
0: the, the cutest stories in
1: the oh yeah yeah and the cutest <laughs> research well tools anyway because stuffed toys yeah uh, one case i was bringing naughty her research tools and it turned out i was transporting stuffed toys and, sti- <laughs> and stickers stickers and, and stickers very Can't important forget stuff. stickers yeah and what and what was the study that made you famous in particular oh no no it didn't make me famous come on oh well, fairly famous <laughs>
2: Um, so I had done um, a series of studies looking at choice in relation to um, children's behavior and how you can ch- actually change how nice they are to people if you give them choice. But the study was actually taking a more nuanced take on choice, so exactly which features of choice motivate us and why. So the study was um, had given one group of children no choice at all and told them that they have to be nice, mm-hmm. and another group of children were given a um A really difficult choice of you know keeping a really attractive sticker for themselves or giving it to someone else so Mm -hmm. what i called it a difficult choice and another group of children was given a choice but it was kind of an easy choice so they were given some autonomy but they were told oh you can either you know be nice or nobody gets the sticker Mm -hmm. so kind of an easy choice and then what i had found was that um all three groups initially would be nice and you'd do the same thing either way right if you had choice or you didn't have choice um, but then only that group that had the difficult choice would persist and continue to be nice later on. So hmm. interesting. The idea is that at first, whether you're told to do something nice or um, or you do it by choice, you might do the same thing either way, but it's only the people who have difficult choices that actually learn something from those hmm. difficult choices.
0: That's interesting, but why do you use kids? Why not use like teenagers or people ah, of your age?
2: Excellent question. So two reasons. <laughs> Um, one is that you can actually ask some of these questions, uh, in a much easier way with children. So you can present them with these, so adults already have this, um, complex baggage and understanding of what choice is, and children who don't necessarily have that understanding yet are a really great population to test these philosophical questions with. Um, and then the other answer is that, well, you can actually figure out some of these philosophical questions by looking at kids who say, for example, haven't yet acquired language or have, right? Or haven't acquired certain words or haven't acquired a theory of mind, so an understanding of other people's mental states. Mm -hmm. So um, if you want to say, ask a question like, does morality depend on understanding the word nice, right? You can't find a group of adults that doesn't Mm -hmm. understand the Mm -hmm. word nice. Um, If you did, they would have other issues. You can't study that question with adults. (laughs) But you can look at it with kids. You can look at a group of kids that knows that word or doesn't know that word or look at what happens once they acquire that word or look at what happens when they acquire an understanding of other people's mental states or other types of complicated words and concepts, and you can start to tease apart some of these questions. So at least that's why I study kids. Other people would say, um, and I agree with this too, is that they're really interested in change over time. It'd be another reason to study kids because you can look at what
1: actually changes mm-hmm. and when and why and like perhaps answer some of those nature versus nurture questions as well yeah absolutely mm-hmm. and so we we're very fortunate to meet Nadia, actually, in the same context that Liz and I met each other, which was working on Cornell's West Campus for Hans Bethe House. Yes. Best house ever. Yes. And I'm very <laughs> excited to be back here for a weekend. Yes, yeah. and we're excited to have her as our first social sciences PhD guest. Yay. And so we brought her here um, today for talking about a, a very uh, major topic for probably all of our listeners in academia, which is the academic job market. And yes. we thought it would be really interesting to talk about what the, does the academic job market look for humanities, STEM, and social science from the po- standpoints of people like us who are in this really precarious, vulnerable place of navigating it right now and possibly being um, having to navigate it over the next few years at least.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, Nadia, you, you just talked about your amazing research and having known you for now, oh my God, three years? Mm-hmm. Going on three years, something yeah. like that now? I think so. And, you know, I've, i I... As I'm listening to you talk, all I can think of is, like, why are you not in your tenure-track job? Why are you not hired yet? And I know that's, like, the worst thing you could ever say to someone because it's flattery, but it's also, like, there's this other side to it, right, of, like, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um, well... I'm flattered that you think that, but then there are realities and other things. Can, Absolutely. Can I talk about that for you?
2: I think, I, I mean, I think the basic answer is that because there's a bajillion of us out there, right? <laughs> yeah. So. But, I mean, if we're the
0: best, we're just the best. Okay. I got
1: to <laughs> <Yeah>. stop this. <laughs> <laughs> also sort of wondering, like, what is the timeline like for you guys? Because at least so in the humanities, for example, uh, typically it used to be that the modern language association job list would go live in the beginning of September. And that could be the primary, uh, uh, gathering of jobs, although now there's also the Chronicle of Higher Ed and inside Higher and the VTA and a whole bunch of other sites okay. also collect jobs. Typically it begins around right now and it keeps on going through um, until January, which is when usually people get interviewed at MLA. However, now what's been happening is that the job list has become less and less centralized. So jobs continue rolling out through the rest of the academic year. So the anxiety doesn't really go away. It's mm. not just after the fall. It's like you're continually still waiting through the spring semester. And I know that some people like were well into near the end of the spring semester before they got anything. And mm. uh, So what does that look like for you guys? Can I just ask a follow up question? Yeah, correctly? for sure. So
2: does this mean that the timeline for each individual institution is not um, well aligned with any other institution? Is that right?
1: Well, I guess it de- I mean, like, obviously, it's somewhat standardized because it used to roll out at the beginning of, of the fall. But I think that probably budgets get approved at different times, which is perhaps mm-hmm. why it gets rolled out. In some cases, usually during the spring, it's like visiting assistant professorships will often become open, probably mm-hmm. because they realize that there's a gap in the curriculum, or perhaps someone's on leave or for other reason, mm-hmm. and so then those positions become available.
2: Yeah. Well, um, our timeline is also not particularly and then standardized.
0: Could you just say again what the R is for
2: you? Oh, sorry. So I mm-hmm. am um, in psychology specifically, and so that's what I can speak to is mm-hmm. psychology, um, and more specifically in developmental psychology. Um, although I think a lot of what I'll say probably mostly applies to a lot of fields within psychology. Um, so it's, it's not particularly standardized either. Uh-huh. Certainly a lot of schools will try to what they call, say, jump on the boat, right? And they try to put out job ads early September, early October. Mm-hmm. So as soon as they can, as soon as budgets get approved, just so that they can hire the top candidates, as soon as they can, they can get a jump start. But it's not uncommon at all to see a January deadline, for example. Mm-hmm. And for people to continue to be interviewing. In fact, um, there are schools now that are starting to put out job ads, let's say, in February
1: hmm. yeah. and then higher. And, and also, what does a job ad look like in your field? For, for example, in English literature, usually it would be something like early modern English. Like Often it's like the, the time period and the region, or it might be like 20th century ethnic American literatures. Sometimes like it would be broader categories like um, freshman composition and rhetoric, um, also, I'm looking at things like that might say something like, women's studies and LGBT studies with a um, possible specialization in history of science, mm-hmm. and so those are two, some of the ways that those tend to get narrowed down. Um, I know that in some other fields, sometimes it's just like a general call, like science and technology studies, often is just an open call to it. anyone in any field, and that's the case for smaller fields in the humanities as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I do see a lot of general calls, so a lot of them will say we're interested in someone, a tenure hiring someone in a tenure track position in the field of developmental psychology broadly defined or oh, okay. in the field of cognitive psychology broadly defined. Occasionally there will be very specific expertise that they're looking for. Maybe they even have someone specific in mind, like an internal person.
1: Yeah, that often happens too. Um,
2: but yeah, a lot of the time I'll see something really broad. And people will say, oh, well, it's because we just want the best candidate, not necessarily the person who does specific X or Y type of research although a lot of the time the research that they're interested in will depend on the faculty members already in that department. How
0: do you respond when you hear something and they say they just want the best candidate? (sighs) Like as someone who is yeah is actually applying and trying to make that fit what does that feel like?
2: Oh riddled with a lot of anxiety as you might imagine but it's just so hard I mean It's so hard to guess what they're thinking. So you just kind of have... I mean, the the approach I've now taken is to just put forth my materials and just not worry about what they're looking for, unless there's something really specific in the job ad that might not be very well emphasized in my current materials. Then I might try to emphasize it a little more. But, yeah, you just...
1: I don't just don't think you know. I think that's probably the case across fields. Like you don't know what the internal dynamics of the department is. Like maybe the ad had to be tweaked for the administration, but actually in the department they actually know that they want the sub area, but they couldn't yeah. say it. Or there <clears throat> might be a couple other people in the search hiring committee that have very particular um, ideas of what the gap is that they couldn't yes. even advertise. And so, Liz, what does the timeline look like in in STEM, or at least biomedical engineering, and what does the what do the ads look like?
0: In STEM, I would say. And I'm, I'm also drawing from a workshop faculty that I just, a, a launch, faculty launch program I just went to. So this would probably apply to uh, the whole realm, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. But my primary field is biomedical engineering. And what I would say is that you, the timeline, I think it's very similar. Ideally, you have calls going out from August to October. And then after October, they may start um, asking for interviews or you should always keep looking because it may, they may have like a late submission by January, you might be asked to do an interview and decisions maybe go out in April, but you have to be prepared because some people may move faster than others, so it can Mm -hmm. very well be that you hear about an announcement and then they call you and they say, hey, can you come and give a site interview, which means you have to have, you know, your research statement, your... Teaching statement and have your presentation and all that down in two weeks, and you, you need to be there to mm. do that. So, so it can be very stressful in, in that sense.
1: That's sorry. That's interesting because typically for the the ads that we see in the humanities, some of them might just ask for a cover letter and CV, but often them they do ask for your entire teaching portfolio and your research statement up front yeah. as well.
2: And letters uh, of recommendation. And, less, and of course, usually. letters of recommendation.
1: Yeah.
0: The it, research statement is everything. Uh huh. And the um, and actually that that's a broad statement because it also depends on where you go, and you have to tailor your application to where you're going. So if you're going, if you want to apply to a research institution, um, usually the research statement is really really important. And while the teaching statement will maybe asked for, if you actually make it look too great, that could be disadvantaged mm-hmm. because then they're thinking oh, this person really wants to spend all their time teaching, but they mm-hmm. need to get an R01. They need to do all these things.
2: I have actually heard that advice before, is not yes. to spend too long on the teaching. Or at least but not to make it, too long. if you're going like to a long. place
0: that is all teaching, you, you know, you need to have, like, a huge teaching portfolio. Or if you're going to a place that likes to do 50-50,
1: which mm-hmm. is actually
0: kind of the catch-22 of a small institution where you may think it may not be as important, but nowadays research is always important. Mm-hmm. It's just that they don't actually, but teaching is still important, but research is becoming more important, so you actually have to do more work. But you have to gauge how important the teaching portfolio is by the people that you're talking to, because you don't want to dissuade anyone mm-hmm. from saying that some, yeah.
1: So I was going to say that from what you're saying after the ads, it sounds like a similar timeline in the humanities, which, so ads are typically supposed to go out at the beginning of the fall. Advertising usually happens in January with the Modern Language Association, where um, people working in all areas of literature come together, and then there's, that's when interviews happen. So that's when it gets whittled down to probably like the couple top dozen candidates mm-hmm. or so, and then probably like the top five or so get given campus visits in the spring. Yeah, is usually what happens for us. And there's been a lot of controversy also because um, about, for example, going to MLA because it's so expensive to go and typically. Um, I think a lot of place schools can't, for example, fund their students to can't completely cover uh, the cost of for students to go, and so there's been a pressure to um, instead do Skype interviews so that people can save the costs mm-hmm. of heading out to different locations. Often, um, because even though MLA is attracting everyone working on like literature broadly, but since it's based in the U.S., that's often difficult for people who are international. Uh, last year it was in Vancouver, so that was a lot had a lot of problems for like friends of mine who were studying in the states, but for say we in Brazil, because then they had to work with visa issues. In general, there's this whole um, sort of question about like what what is the elitism of doing in the top conference of the field, but um, perhaps is a lot about the name of it, but ends up being extremely expensive both for graduate students who are applying and possibly for some of the smaller universities that are trying to pay to send their entire hiring committee out there.
2: So it sounds like there's several rounds of interviews in your field, from what you're saying. So there's one in which you get interviewed at a top
1: mm-hmm.
2: at a top conference, and then you do a site visit. Is yes. That right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I see.
0: Yeah, usually it would be, they would just do a phone interview
2: and check you out, and
0: then, um, right. and after the phone interview, if they still like you, they'll ask you to do a site interview.
2: Yeah, that's more common in my experience as well. That seems like it would be
1: be more cost effective. (laughs) Yes.
2: But that's not to say, there are conferences during years that people are hiring, and so Mm -hmm. you want to be cognizant of that as an applicant, and you want to make sure, you know, that you're if you're giving a talk, you you might want to introduce yourself to the people who you know from that. You know, that's the advice you get from the institution that mm-hmm. might be hiring. That's always a good idea, actually, whether or not you're on the job market mm-hmm. or not. But
0: right, if you're giving a talk or you're doing something, invite people to come to your talk. Um, actually, try to meet those people in person because yeah, um, that's honestly that's how you're gonna know how to tailor your application. You need to meet people there and um, a good piece of advice I've got for people who are graduate students, but as a graduate student, you may be thinking, how do I get to meet the really important people when I'm just a lowly grad student? And I can see why you'd be stressed out about that because you may be thinking, I need time with the department chair, but this department chair has no time for me. But you can still meet people from that institution and then gain insight about how that department works so that when you eventually do talk to someone, Um, You can be a little bit more informed about how things work, and then you can reference that you spoke to this person in the department Mm -hmm. So even if they're low low hanging fruit, and I'm using quotation marks which you can't see but low hanging fruit um, It can still be a good way to know it And I guess right now we've been talking about the dynamics of how the calls get offered and in some ways It seems like maybe the least stressful part of the, the process, right? Like getting the call, you can see the call, but then what about happens? Well, what about the process that happens afterwards and during that entire process of trying to tailor your application and then submitting and then the waiting and then that whole process?
1: Yeah. And of course, because it's not just <laughs> that we're applying to jobs at the same yeah. time. Like, for example, Liz and I are finishing up our dissertations. Yes. I am also teaching at the same time. I'm working on West Campus. Nadia is doing her postdoc work. Like said, yeah. juggling all these things at once and then the anxiety of waiting for the next couple of months and not really knowing. And also, I don't know if it's the case for you guys in your field, but they're not very good at letting you know that um, you're not going to be hearing back until like, well, until like, I've heard fans say that they've heard that back in June that, that like, of course, they haven't gotten the job. It's like, well, at that point I knew. Mm-hmm. And it just like, it just sort of reminding me, reminding me that I got rejected and so sometimes you never hear back at all. And so it becomes a sort of weird waiting game. I think that's
2: actually more common in my experience, is mm-hmm. not hearing back at all than to hear back yeah. at a specific time. Of course, there's some that will email you back in June and say thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. But for the most part, you can just interpret the silence as rejection.
1: Yeah. yeah. And actually, and that's why the waiting is so anxious, because it's mm-hmm. like, are you waiting, or is it just silence now? <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I was just thinking about how the number of job positions themselves so i was talking with you zine mm-hmm. like a while ago and and it's just you mentioned that it was really depressing to see that there aren't that many jobs there may be five jobs offered mm-hmm. in the entire world for this one position
1: yes yes and that's uh, <laughs> uh yes all, all we could do is nod to be sad and so this is i feel like um Probably this is the case for all of us, like when we try to exp- explain to our friends who are not in academia what the job market is like, and they're just like, oh, so, you know, will, there, will you be getting a job? It's like, I don't even know how many job postings there are going to be, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to know. And now that they are sort of rolled out throughout the fall and even to the spring, you don't even know how many total jobs there will be in your field. And you have no control over whether or not they'll be in your area or not. And so some from my friends, for example, who might be modernism, when the job list went out, there was only four positions and advertised it at all in the mm-hmm. world. And you can't do anything to to do um, about that. And I remember one of my friends being like, well, can't you tailor what you work on to what they're going to be offering? But you have no idea every year. And, of course, you're dedicating five, six, seven years of your PhD on a project, and you can't suddenly switch gears since you've been doing all your training on a particular project at that point.
2: Yeah, and there's something to be said about just luck in terms of which year you apply. So one year there might be four jobs in your specific subfield, and another year there might be 20 jobs in Mm -hmm. that specific subfield. And, of course, if you have you know, several years to go ahead and apply in the job market for whatever reason, whether you're well-funded or you're just in a position where you can kind of hang out somewhere and not worry too much, um, then that's fine and you can just wait out Mm -hmm. the job market. But if you're not in that position it's incredibly anxiety invoking that it
1: kind of depends there's this extra element of luck in addition to everything yeah, else like sometimes it could be just completely external world events like in in one, one case i met a professor in near eastern studies and it just so happened that he was studying i think like modern political movements in egypt at the time of the arab spring as it was happening so everyone wanted to hire in the area he got mm. like something like 20 interviews whoa Yes. Wow. But, but like it was just like but how can you possibly control for that sort of thing? Like that a particular Right, and I've seen it go both caught. ways, really. Yeah.
2: People who have great research but it just wasn't the year
1: that yeah. people were looking in that My field. Friends in eighteenth century music hall issue, for example, or something like that. Sure.
0: And I think with um, the the STEM disciplines, there can be this false sense of an oasis of job opportunities mm-hmm. because I I see a lot of advertisements, but as an example, in biomedical engineering, it's a relatively young discipline, and there's a lot of growth, especially because right now interdisciplinary is in. So if you can mix um, bio with any of the other, you know, so biophysics, biochemistry, biomathematical computational methods, you can kind of get funding, and it's caused, like, this growth. And what... My myself along with my other friends wonder is how long is it gonna last? Mm-hmm. Am I gonna actually? Is it gonna last until I'm out of the pipeline? And that's kind of like a an anxiety that I that I kind of have because you know when I was an undergrad, I thought I could be a professor or at least try, and I wasn't really aware of the difficulties and the kind of shortages that were the, the academic climate that I was really going into and I would say that I was and I think we all are, we're a child of the recession we're a child of this new change, this new climate it's just a really different place than the one that I was kind of told it would be and I'm trying to adjust at the same time as all these things are happening and one thing about that adjustment that I'm thinking about as a STEM person is am I going to get a job before the bubble bursts Mm -hmm. or not Mm -hmm. because it will one day I know it's not going to last forever, and there are plenty of other STEM disciplines that may not be doing as well as biomedical engineering is at the moment, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be like that.
1: And, of course, the awkwardness thing about the bubble, um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, is, like, even if you succeed in the bubble, what happens to the people after you, after the birth? Yeah, I
0: have friends who are, like, two or three years under me, and I'm thinking, you know... Yeah, I want to skirt. I just want to slide through. I'm selfish, but
1: <laughs> but like, what about everyone else? And then yeah. when if you make it to tenure track, like, what? How do you mentor undergrads and graduate students who want to continue? But you know that that bubble is just in the middle of exploding. Right. right.
2: That's a really great question because, of course, the job institutions, at least the ones I want to be at, is one was with great graduate programs, mm-hmm. and ones when you can take on great, wonderful students, and hopefully a lot of them, and they could be well funded and all of that. But the truth is that. There, there comes a certain duality with taking on students. You want to mentor them and you want to sort of send them out into the field. And at the same time, you can't take on too many because you know that there's only so many jobs out there. Mm-hmm. And there is a certain guilt with taking on too many students. And I don't know that we've all learned yet how to deal with that tension.
1: Yeah, and I think it's what particularly is the problem is that often there's this prestige factor in having, say, a, gradu- a graduate a um part of, the de- of any department that adds to a university's prestige. And of course, having graduate students is prestige. But whether or not there's a number of jobs there for those students is a completely other matter. Mm-hmm.
0: Or in, in addition to this, re-envisioning what a PhD's role in society actually is. And so right now, I guess we're thinking of it being purely academic. And so I think part of it is, one, making people aware of the opportunities that PhDs can be doing that aren't academic, and the other way could also just be, hey, we need to create spaces for these people, because that's the only real way I can see that we can continue to have PhDs ethically.
1: Yeah, and to destigmatize looking at non-academic jobs. Mm -hmm. I think that there has been a lot of push at Cornell, definitely, but the problem is that even, we're still in the growing pains of it, because we're still in the, I feel like we're the generation that's really Mm -hmm. struggling with the recession new normal yeah and because of that people are still trying to figure out like what do those career services look like what speakers even know what is going on that like know enough that are because the problem is like of course we're being advised by our advisors who are excellent but they themselves have only gone the one track how do you find the people who've made that track given that most of those people weren't during the current normal as it is they don't exactly know what it's like to navigate it yeah and
0: i'm glad you you said the new normal because
1: and well, that's I, the phrase I, that actually Liz was using it purposely in our conversation. Been so i talking
0: about this. I, I planted it, but but what I'm noticing at least is the way that we're conceptualizing the job process to be isn't the way it actually is. So mm-hmm. so what I mean is the idea that I'm going to go from grad school into a tenure track position
1: ha. is yeah.
0: not really how it works anymore. So you're taking people who weren't taking postdocs who are doing postdocs and postdocs are more competitive than they than I thought they were. So I'll I'll be honest with myself. I when I was applying for postdocs, I thought it was going to be easy. I'm a stem, I mean, I mean this, you know, I'm a biomedical any scientist, anything. I'm a biomedical scientist. Um, I'm from Cornell. I should be able to find a postdoc. They're kind of like low-hanging fruit. I just email people, they email me back if we say we want to work together i go there and it's <laughs> okay. fine and i you know i sent out maybe 12 emails and i got no responses yeah. and it broke my heart because the way i've been told that things work wasn't the way it was working now after i cried i didn't actually cry i'm just saying that you know after i kind of stopped moping around i reevaluated my package and I thought about things, and I got some more guidance, and I sent out another wave, and I ended up getting some responses, and it and it it's working out okay. Fortunately, I do have a postdoc lined Woohoo! up. Woohoo! Yes, yay! <laughs> but I guess this idea that things are going to be easy, that you can, that you're just there's Absolutely. no transition, and I know that's for STEM. Where I guess I, I will have to say that when I hear about short edition things, it's really easy to think, oh, I'm STEM, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be fine. It's just and so English
1: literature that's in humanities the, are dying it's out. It's the
0: soft, quote unquote, soft sciences that are going to have the problem. And I don't think that's necessarily, well, that's not true at all. And I, guess, I know you guys have experiences with either needing postdocs, needing more than one, um, needing longer postdocs. And so this idea of going straight through or there even being one clear path is just not the way it is. And I think that if we can demystify that process and actually say, this isn't. The new, the normal now isn't like clean. It isn't clear. It's this whole. It's like it's a whole fit process, and it takes a long time. Some people get jobs in their third try of applications.
1: Or and, sixth, I've or heard of three. yeah, sixth or even yeah. seventh. Yeah. yeah.
0: But that's what it takes now.
2: <laughs> I don't know. No, I I definitely relate to the to the idea that. I, I never thought that getting a tenure track job was going to be easy. I always accepted the fact that I was going to try, and then maybe I'd just take a postdoc. But I also thought that getting a postdoc would be easy, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say that now because I think, of course, it wouldn't be easy. Why would it be easy? Everything's yeah, hard. Exactly. <laughs> but it, but it, there wasn't oh okay. there wasn't a straightforward um, path just like I thought there was. And I also I think there is this notion that's kind of percolating around academia that you email people and you just kind of get a postdoc and you just take them and I found that I had a very very similar experience to you I just didn't find that to be the case at all and it was really disorienting and I was incredibly anxious for a while until I kind of made some stuff happen my advisor helped out someone else that I had asked to help me helped me out and it just kind of worked out for a year until I got some funding but it was very frightening for a few months because nobody was I had the same experience nobody was emailing me back I didn't get fund, like, I tried to submit a grant, I didn't get funded, I thought, you know, I would, for some reason, I didn't. Mm-hmm.
1: So this is sort of funny for the humanities perspective, because in no way would we ever be able to email us a place and get a postdoc. Oh.
2: Yeah. That, that would not happen. I mean, I'm wondering if we're switching away from that model now. I mean, mm-hmm. it is true that you can email people. So wait,
0: people did you and- apply through, like, some formal website, then? How did you...
2: Well, that's the thing. I still we, email people. We have for formal job ads for postdocs, but that's often not the primary way that people get postdocs. They email someone and they start finding out if that person has funding, and then if that person has funding, then maybe they'll meet and maybe they'll talk about projects they could do together. Mm-hmm. And that's that was pretty common, and now it's less common because people have less funding. And even when they do have funding... Perhaps they've already talked to someone and you've emailed them too late and it's just you know there's that extra luck factor that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's becoming more common that you have to come with your own funding so you have to not come with your own funding but you have to apply for grants with that person or on your own and then that way you can get a postdoc but these things are just not formal things that you would find in a job advertisement or really Mm -hmm. that a graduate program Would necessarily tell you from day one that that's how you get a postdoc.
1: So the humanities, uh, as I was alluding to, is quite different. Like, there, I think there's far fewer. Like, there's humanities used to not be as dependent on a postdoc model because on the one hand, like, it makes more sense in your fields because like the postdoc ends up being like an additional worker in a lab and like I guess I sort of think of them as like, you know providing additional labor for a particular department or lab. I have some
0: thoughts mm. on what a postdoc does, but I'll talk
1: about yeah, that. Yeah, and I, well, I, I read PhD comics, and so sometimes it seems like the um, some postdocs somewhere it's, uh, in STEM seem to be used as as workhorses. But anyways, in in the humanities, postdocs are few and far between, although they're becoming increasingly common, and they're all formal. Mm. Um, and they do tend to be general, unless there's a theme. Like, for example, at the Society for Humanities at Cornell, the theme for next year is going to be skin. What? It's skin, so it could be like really great for people who say like work on thinking about affect or or bodies. Often, like thinking about race would be a really big one. Uh, the t- uh, this past this I year currently a melanoma, like skin. Cancer, oh, so for so, um, well, so,
0: like imaging, Im- people like to do different imaging modalities in skin. So that's what oh, okay. you test on to see how deep you can image in skin. So
1: and like I have a friend who's uh, a society fellow this year, and the theme this year is time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also. Never
1: mind, yeah, I'm obviously, we're, our pro, uh, dif- we should talk be about be this
2: whole... Yeah, it's well, definitely different for time. us. So I'm actually curious, and before I ask this question, yes. I just want to mention that last week was na- um, National Postdoc yeah. Appreciation <laughs> Week. Yeah. So if you haven't done so last week, appreciate your local postdoc. <laughs> <laughs> um, my university actually had free ice cream, so oh, that's that was great. great. Yes. But I'm curious, because in my field, I think... You know, postdocs are actually, if you can afford them, in my view, at least they're a good thing because they're people who need less training and they can get more research Mm -hmm. done and you collaborate on research with the postdoc. But in your field,
1: it sounds like people publish mo- mostly on their own. Yes. Is that right? yeah. Like the okay. humanities are very, despite sounding like we should be more human, it's, it's more <laughs> a lonely process. It's very unusual to do, to author anything with another person.
2: So then, what incentive does a faculty member have or a department have for taking on postdocs? Yes. See,
1: that's a good question. And that's definitely why there's fewer of them. So a lot of the ones in the US um, are through the Mellon Foundation. And I think mm-hmm. that, for example, Cornell's had to apply specifically for diversity Mellon fellowships to try and in- increase. Uh, of course, representation of, say, first generation people or people, people from disadvantaged backgrounds in the profession, which is def- definitely sorely needed. Sometimes postdocs are for research. I think that postdocs are still related to prestige. And so, say, so, the reason why I said like there's skin or time as a particular theme, often you're being bought in as a postdoc to to inject new vitality into. The, um, an, into departments and so for a while you might offer maybe like just one graduate class and the, rest of the time you're doing research but you're often mandated to be in a workshop and a, or a round table where you bring in new ideas around a particular theme all the time um, so I think it's yeah uh, humanities post- postdocs seem to be about is it more much more about individual research but also about still about the idea of prestige and like keeping ideas current and new and postdocs in the humanities are fantastic, I'd, I'd like to add. Also, since the, since the requirements for tenure in the humanities is typically often a book plus articles, and the book often takes quite a long time, I know a lot of friends who were lucky enough to get into tenure-track jobs who who actually felt quite stressed because they didn't have a postdoc before because then they immediately are on the, on the tenure clock.
2: Mm.
1: Whereas if you had a postdoc, then you have time to work on your book and get a book contract or at least more time to do it.
2: Yeah, I'll actually add, now having been in a postdoc for Mm -hmm. a year now I'm in a pretty stable situation with postdoc funding I wasn't before but now I am it's a really great time if you can Mm -hmm. at least in my view I'm sure not everyone feels that way not everyone's experience would reflect that but if you can carve out time to just do research I'm really enjoying that part of it yes
1: I'm definitely applying for some postdocs that you know I really have my fingers crossed because I think they'd be absolutely wonderful opportunities to work with great people but but who knows? And I,
0: my view towards postdocs have changed. Okay. So, um, you will... Listeners, people who have listened to this for a long time will recall that I think in the second episode, I opened and said, there's no way I'm doing academia. I'm going to the industry where I'm appreciated and loved and...
1: She doesn't want love anymore, basically. <laughs> um, yes.
2: <laughs>
0: well, that's another discussion. <laughs> Um, but what I would say is that I, I did a little searching, I, I, I did a little research into looking into energy positions that I was really interested in, and I realized I needed to know more than I already did. And that's a very, I mean, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but there's nothing like reaching the end of your PhD career, so you spent maybe five, six years in a PhD, and having someone tell you that you still don't know enough. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't know, for me, that was, like, a little, um...
1: That the minimum requirements was, are still not enough.
0: It was it was really hard to hear that, because I thought that I had attained some level. You know, like, am I not at entry? You're telling I'm not even at entry?
1: With three degrees.
0: <laughs> are you... Yeah, so so that was a thing. And then, you know, again, over time, letting the simmer, and I'm also realizing that, okay, I can benefit from this, and I do know more. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, it is true within my field interdisciplinary is important so there's no way the kind of problems that we're solving now really do require knowledge of multiple disciplines and you really do have to know a lot more to be able to be a key player in some of these new Mm -hmm. fields and I guess that having understanding that has helped me come to terms of what Mm -hmm. I need to do and also talking to people who have done postdocs are helping understand the value of them and it's really funny um. listen to your postdoc I mean I know as a grad student you may not care but listen <laughs> to them because now that I'm actually approaching the stage these little sentences these little like wisdom bits that postdocs had given me when I was like a second year and a third year are coming, <laughs> they're coming back to me and it's like they were right. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. Same I'm, with
2: senior grad students. It's just
0: yeah. hearing it, and it's like... And listen I,
1: to the old folks.
0: Well, I was <laughs> trying not to lis- not listen to them, but I just didn't understand. Yeah. And now the postdoc is really great. You become a better scientist. You get to do something independent. You're not owned by your thesis advisor anymore. So you have way more flexibility than you had before. And also, it's a kind of nice intermediate. So if you do go on to do a, fat, a tenure-track job, Um, you have a lot more responsibility to worry about. And faculty that I know now kind of relive their postdoc days when they only really more or less just have to do their own research. So um, it's really hard because... Now that I'm reflecting on what I'm saying, I'm saying that I think the postdoc is great, and I'm excited about it. But there's also this element of like, why am I doing a postdoc? People didn't have to do that before, and it's like a Mm -hmm. love hate relationship.
1: Well, it's the very things that make the postdoc good that now make them necessary in the new normal, and that makes it less likely for people to be able to get jobs straight off the bat, or meaning that you're going to have to think about, for example, if any of our listeners are thinking about having being in a relationship with someone and having a family or family that you love, like the timeline for being able to be settled down for that has now been being pushed back even more. Because postdocs are so good. That means that once you get your PhD, that is not going to be enough on the job market. You're going to be up against the people who have the two, three year postdoc. Even if you're the most stellar grad student, your publication, your CV record cannot compare to that sort of person. And so it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of people's, um, of of the whole process towards a job stability becoming much more of a longer and longer process. And so definitely, for example, in the humanities, at least three years is probably expected. Um, ideally, in the meantime, you'd get a postdoc would be the ideal situation or a visiting assistant professorship or being an adjunct.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's that's actually about what we're expecting uh-huh. as well. Now, that's not to say that I don't know some people who have gotten jobs straight out of graduate school, but it's becoming exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Yeah, and yeah, sure. you were actually
0: talking about this experience of being on a panel with
2: someone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am. Um, I have met people who have... So I'm, I'm actually doing a panel at an upcoming conference, and the person that I'm doing this panel with... Um, Got a postdoc, not a faculty job, but got a postdoc right away, and it seemed like she submitted a grant and then got her grant and then went straight on to her postdoc and then got a faculty job, which is great, of course, but my experience was just nothing like that. And so, you know, you, you've you heard my experience before. It was a really rough trying to get a postdoc experience, and then once I got it, I had to look for more postdocs and then be on the job market again, and it was a stressful year overall. So it's just very kind of divergent.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you, you ended up taking a part, two part-time and then yeah. transitioned into something.
2: Yeah, so I transitioned into a full-time postdoc, but I had two part-time postdocs, and that's just because two people that I eventually, you know had convinced to essentially take me on, got half-time funding each. (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. another thing, you know, if you want to talk about the new normal, this isn't normal, but there is no normal anymore, right? So, and you had to commute so far. I commuted very far. And I also, I mean, you know, if we want to be real here, I didn't have health insurance from either one of these places. Mm -hmm. So that is a reality for, and that was my year. And was it worth it? Yeah, it was, but Again, I I have to acknowledge that I was in a position to be able to do that. Like it's just, and I couldn't have done it for
1: more than a year. Mm-hmm. Just a st- sort of stressful situation, definitely. It was, I was yeah. feeling very precarious, and like for for myself, of course, it's like, will I be lucky to, enough to get any sort of temporary position, or what will happen to me as an international student? Like if I if anything runs out and I don't get employment here, my visa's up.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I hear a lot from my friends who are international students. is, Well, I have to get something, and it has to be a full-time job
1: mm-hmm.
2: now. So there's that extra
1: pressure. Yeah, it's just like the, the image of the co- very comfortable, wealth, wealthy professor on TV who can really like take it back and you know <laughs> spend all the time walking up and down the, the beautiful, uh, ivy-covered quads is, yeah. is definitely no longer mm-hmm. reality, at least for our generation.
0: You know, speaking of that... Um, that's what that's what's really funny to me because my family in particular, they I guess they kind of always thought education is the way to get stability and security, to have a mm-hmm. great job yes. and to be fine and they've always perpetuated like, you know, get your education, do all this stuff. And also because I've been honored, fortunate and hardworking enough to finish a degree at um some of the best schools in the nation they think, oh, you're going to have no problem getting a job, right? Like, this degree, the institution should be your platform to get this job, mm-hmm. and that's just not the case. People here are not necessarily having, like, the front door open to them over someone else just because they came from Cornell yeah. or from Penn.
1: Yeah. No place has a 100% job placement, rate, yeah. And I feel like, yeah, I've also had the same thing where for my family, it's just like, they're so proud of me getting this PhD, and there's everyone, like, I'm sure that everyone in graduate school has experience where, like, People now are um, from your childhood or your family or are used to thinking of you as one of the smartest people you know. Like, of course you'll do it. You've always been successful at this point. Uh-huh. But now you know you're around everyone who's brilliant, everyone who works hard, everyone is in the same boat. And you know friends who, and years before you who are struggling and are putting together... Who, some of them have been lucky enough to get tenure-track positions. Some of them have cobbled together postdocs yeah. and are surviving, and other people yeah. have gotten nothing.
0: It's so hard to see people that you think are so brilliant and then see them not get there and I mean I definitely felt that way throughout my PhD where I would think they left they're not they you know they've done four years of postdoc and now they finally decided to go you know live with their family move somewhere else for other reasons and then do you know a startup or something and I'm thinking but you were like the person I thought would be Mm -hmm. perfect for this and it's really hard Um, I used to think if they can't make it what chance do I have and
2: Well, perhaps yeah. that actually brings us to what you were saying before about destigmatizing non-academic mm-hmm. job options. Mm-hmm. Because in my experience, most of the people I've worked with actually, um, they don't see academia as the only possible route. Mm-hmm. But these are individuals, these are individual advisors I've had. They, they would encourage, I think, if I wanted to go into something different, they would encourage that. I know, And I know they've encouraged it in other students, but it's true that the departments and institutions as a, as a whole don't necessarily know how to kind of account for that, at least in my experience, mm-hmm. and also don't necessarily incentivize
1: it, even if they've destigmatized it. And, of course, in areas like the humanities, the, the route to non-academic jobs is a lot more obscure because, of course, it's not like we have ex- industry exactly to go into. I think that one thing that we can't emphasize enough in this podcast is the extent to which meritocracy and academia is a myth and that it's so much about um structural structures and institutions and of course it's about also working hard and being smart but that's not enough and that the myth of meritocracy ends ends up leading to a lot of these problems where we are become oblivious to the structural problems that are at play and the people that sort of fall between the cracks
0: that was beautifully said
1: well thank you <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's this thing where um, when Zion and I are talking in general, you know, when we're not recording ourselves, that I'll say something and it'll take maybe 30 seconds to a minute, and then Zion will go, "Yeah," and then she'll say it in like one like coherent sentence <laughs> using like all like the words that just kind of you know say everything, and I'll just look at her like kind of angry, but mostly just like really impressed. and <laughs> I'm Like I hate you. How did you, like, can you write that down? Like, that was really great. Let
1: me, let me, let me use that. English about training. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. well, my, my English Ph.D. This is what the English PhD can give you. You can't see Zai, but she's like... Yeah, fist pumping. pumping.
0: Yeah, Jersey Shore style.
1: I don't know about that. Hey, hey. You seen
0: the show? Hey. Yes,
1: I did. Okay. <laughs> All right. You don't knock on judging. Jersey. Oh, yeah, true. It's given us Not a Now in, <laughs> in Jersey, so. I forgot what
0: happens when you talk about Jersey people. So, um... Job market is hard. It plays with your mind and what you think. And I have to say that what one question I usually ask faculty or um, just any prospective person is how do they deal with that anxiety? Or not the anxiety because that's, like, that's probably not dealing with it. But how do you deal with knowing the facts, knowing what the market is like, and knowing that, that what you want is kind of tenuous
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I, I'm going to tell you what other people said but I'm kind of curious like how do you mm-hmm. guys how are you dealing with it currently you know and and I guess you can even separate how you actually deal with it versus how you want to deal with it
1: because
0: <laughs> yeah
1: I guess I also came I came into the graduate program knowing that it was bad in the humanities and mm-hmm. I tried to be someone who like read Chronicle of Higher Education articles about mm-hmm. what the crisis quote-unquote in the humanities what, um, were and stuff like that nonetheless even though I went out of my way to educate myself there's there still nuances that I myself did not know that being said I tried my hardest to be the best gr- um, graduate student I could be till the end but still knowing that there's still things outside of my control that will will possibly be in my favor or not be in my favor and there's nothing I can do about that and so because of that I've been starting to take up yoga me who mm-hmm. I'm pr- I've, I'm very much a person who's a cardio Wait, li- lifting person I hate per- yoga I hate yoga, <laughs> Wait, I hate I yoga. Know, yeah she knows she knows me I am more proud of like I will squat and deadlift more than my body weight but yoga was boring the hell out of me. But now this year this is what it's come to. I do yoga now. <laughs> I Zanyo do yoga. Minute. How's it? You I know, yoga. I know. So that's your solution to the <sighs> job market. Doing something you
2: hate,
0: which is similar to what you do like already, right? When you go on the job market. <laughs> yeah. How is it that? anyway? No, that's good. We're gonna stick with it. Yoga.
2: Yeah. I don't know, for me I think it's been really helpful. So this is my third time now on the job market. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's been really helpful to Understand first of all that it isn't a Wait, linear. Can you explain
0: third time on the job? Market so I went um,
2: for Yeah, sure. So I went on the job market my first year when I was um, Just finishing up my PhD so finishing up grad school So that was my first time then I went during my first year of postdoc And this is now my second year of postdoc and I'm going for the third time applying for jobs And so, first of all, I think it's useful to say that this is my third time going on the job market because that's normal, and it doesn't sound normal when you say it. Oh, my God, you've applied to jobs for three straight years. But it is, in fact, normal, and I think that's Mm -hmm. been really refreshing. Um, I think that understanding that people have lots of different creative ways that they solve their problem, whether it is by taking... um, halftime postdocs like I did or whatever else they want to do or deciding eventually that academia doesn't work for them they transition out of it there's I just met so many people who just solve this issue in so many different ways is refreshing because I don't know it makes me feel like I can create my own solution eventually if I decide that enough is enough yeah Mm um yeah I mean I think and destigmatizing whatever path you take has been really helpful
1: Yeah, and if only, like, of course, we can make individual solutions, but I feel like there's been such a push now for us to also look at the structural problems, like this increasing corporatization of the university that maybe thinks it's much more useful to hire adjuncts that would only be paid $20,000 a year and get rehired year after year, as opposed to putting all the money towards a tenure-track professor. It's, like, that's a whole conversation to be had unto itself, but definitely it's a problem across higher education. And that doesn't have to do anything with the quality of the people of, of the PhDs being produced or anything like that. That is something that is out of our control and about the changing climate of what the university is and what people think of the university as doing for society.
0: Yeah. When I ask faculty members this question, what they usually say is they just say they don't think about it because they can't afford to. Mm. They just say that you have to do what you love. And you can't always have in your mind how scary it is. You just need to do the steps that it takes to continue doing it or to get there and deal with things as they come.
1: But we do need the help of faculty to make any kind of change in the university yeah. system, I'd say. Especially those people who have the security of tenure. To speak, use your use your power to speak for those who don't.
0: Yeah. And not always the quitlet lit. The quit literature. Yes, the big
1: trends. I think um, we should talk. A, have a whole podcast about yeah, that. We,
0: we could do that. I think we should make a video. Really? Oh no, I'm just. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we can make our own quit literature. Quit quitting oh. literature.
1: Uh, quitting. I I wouldn't because literature is, is me. But you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, but the internet is everybody.
1: Um. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, people are, the people who are writing these things, write them on the internet. Yes, yes. I
1: meant so more of like the, yeah, the joke about the, the lit part of it. But, oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Hashtag list quotes.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> this, please don't make this a thing. I'm still change.
1: will change. No, but I liked it. <laughs> but anyways, we're so happy that we managed to have yes, Nadia for thank you for having for this, me on. Because she's a, a wonderful, brilliant person and... It's so wonderful to be able to spend more time with her Uh, and to commiserate about our collective anxieties across disciplinary (laughs) borders that, and seeing that one thing I'd like to really emphasize that what we're seeing about across all these different fields is not like STEM being good, humanities being bad or anything like that. It's like, this is a structural problem that affects all of us. This
0: is true.
1: Yeah. And that's something that people need to remember and not let, let ourselves be divided and conquered by. And I'm all for job market support groups. Yes. I think it's so
0: necessary to do it, and I actually um, think it's really great to do it interdisciplinary style,
2: mm-hmm. because
0: if I'm doing it with someone who's in my exact field, inevitably, we're going to apply to the same place, and that's going to be a little awkward, mm-hmm. whereas now I can really support you, like, unselfishly. I mean, yeah. I would support my friends, too, and I, I do, and will continue
1: to. <laughs> she says quickly. I don't, don't want to make nice a save, like, nice save. like I
0: have a knife, you know, to my <laughs> friends. What, but what I was um, quote has. This quote. But I okay. Can you got to back me up? I'm just saying. It, I think it's really good. Listen, never
1: tried to kill anyone, to my knowledge. No, I hear
0: what I hear what you're saying. People who are like, um, with you, but not that with you. Especially I don't know. Okay, um
1: people outside of your direct competition also supporting you i get it yeah it's good to have lots of different friends might be another way to put it Different
0: perspectives that you go like oh that's different wow that really you know you want someone who can really commiserate with you not someone like yeah get in line
2: so i actually met someone who um i was having a conversation with her and i mentioned that i just didn't know how to apply for postdocs and she It's like, oh, it's so refreshing to hear someone say that (laughs) Mm -hmm. because there is people act like, of course, there's just something, you know, and this is something you do. So I'm all about support groups to make it clear that there is no normal. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always surprised when I actually do talk to people and it makes me realize how much I actually do know. And I'm like, oh, you don't know this. You
2: need to let me tell you how this
1: works. Well, to use a quote from a previous Liz episode, she's oh, quote, no. "What naturally intelligent."
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of natural intelligence I was dealing with. Hashtag, oh that's, so that's that's the Liz quote. Naturally smart. Uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she's I, cringing. We love you. It's,
0: it's fake it till you make it. It's like, it's um. Why can't I say I'm smart?
2: Yeah, that's true. Nobody said you can't. You no, should. I don't, and I don't, yeah. I guess,
0: I'm not saying it to, like, make myself, myself feel better as a, as me, who experiences me things, but as a woman who's from Mississippi or who has these experiences, why, you know, I'm in this space, I think I just I, deserve is not the right word, because I think a lot of people deserve things, um.
2: Well, the culture of modesty can certainly go too far. I actually do agree with that. Especially in a a
1: gendered way for women. Yes, an
2: expectation of others' modesty can go too far Mm -hmm. as well. And I say this as someone who was raised to be modest and, you know, went through life thinking that this was a good thing. But I see that it really is not a quality that always needs to be perpetuated. Mm -hmm. And certainly we don't need to judge other people. Also, as if much I'm as we do,
0: facts then yeah.
2: it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> That's not.
1: Also, if we have data to
2: <laughs> yeah, pack up my. I'm,
0: I'm thinking of data.
1: I'm just thinking of uh, our yeah, obvious like, superiority said, over uh, other The way people. that Liz has graphed her intelligence. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I'll take it. I said it. I'll take it. But what I'm, but what I'm really getting at is that if I won this award or if I. Pass this class. Yeah. If I pass my mm-hmm. exams, and that's not really bragging, I'm just telling you that yeah. I passed it. Yeah. So,
1: yeah.
0: And I'm not going to say I didn't. Actually, sometimes I do say. I don't know.
1: I'd also like to mention that it's almost a dream that someday maybe the three of us could be at the same institution. Yeah. Yes. That'd be amazing. That'd
0: be so awesome. It's so if a any, dream.
1: anyone is listening and you want to do a cluster hire of three <laughs> amazing people in STEM, social science, and humanities, yeah. you get an amazing team of women. This will yes. be the
0: best slash weirdest part of hire you've ever yes. experienced. Because none of us are like, yeah, this is going be the best couple higher. I and it's say. just, it's just yeah.
1: data that we aren't all naturally smart. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> we
2: are.
1: You get a great bargain. We're fantastic people. We higher do really good interdisciplinary conversation and work. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I think this is evidence of it. And we're modest. <laughs> we just are. <laughs> naturally we modest. We
0: really are. Oh, this is going to follow <laughs> me forever. <laughs> this is an event. I don't know. This is an event.
1: Maybe this is a good point to wrap up.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful point to wrap up. No, wait, wait, no, I need to be redeemed. <laughs> <You> gotta, like, <laughs> wait a we're not gonna end with like hashtag Liz quote, Liz is awesome all the time. It's facts. No.
1: Okay, so ha- so how do you want to end? I want Liz?
0: you to like say something yourselves.
2: Well, we said cluster higher. Yes, we're taking we're we're having you take us
1: along on the journey of your awesome. No, yes. I need yes. to be
2: taking <laughs> along with you guys whatever whoever's driving
1: yeah although realistically because it costs the most to hire stem yeah t- t- tenure track you're people. gonna so be we're bringing the you. most money yeah you have to bring in the money and bring the rest the other two of us along mm. Mm. that's what I've heard it actually happens a lot like especially if there's partner <laughs> hires where it's the stem partners being hired and they're like oh you have a spousal hire oh they're in the humanities oh that's like nothing they're cheap
0: Comparatively.
1: Comparatively. Comparatively. That's, I've definitely heard that across institutions that that tends, often be tends to be the case. Interesting.
0: Are you considering? <laughs> no. Yeah, if I get a job. Well, we just need to sync up somehow. Actually, I mean, okay, so last point. I think this podcast is awesome because I think that when we look back years from now, wherever we may be,
2: and um, hopefully it's at the same institution who's yeah. going a cluster or hire. at any
0: institution, yes. and we're doing web-based, wh- whatever it's going to be. We're going, yeah, okay, fine. We're going to be in the same place. It's going to be awesome. We're going to hire people we like, and who are um, great. We're saying it now so we can look back in five years and either be like, yes, we did it, or like, what were we thinking? Um,
1: <laughs> and our theme song will be Drake. Started from the bottom. No,
0: it will not be Drake. It'll be a. It'll be. What will our theme song be? It can it not be Drake? I think
2: you were singing the Meow Mix song before we started this. <laughs> <laughs> Is that
0: your theme song. I wasn't. That wasn't a theme song. I was testing the microphone. <laughs>
2: okay. Well,
0: I'm <laughs> making it a theme
2: song. <laughs> uh,
1: anyways, the three of us are awesome. Hire us all. So I think that's please, a good note. Please. Just as a thanks for this podcast. Yes. Yeah.
0: And, so that's the end of our podcast... Thank you for listening. Um, again, my name is Liz Blaine. Seem to be Dr.
1: Liz. Yes, I'm Zainya. Also, remember to if like us on Facebook, and it'd be really awesome if you could leave us a review on iTunes, actually. And our and special
0: I'm guest,
2: Nadia Trujac. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and finally, we are actually going to start a new section called um, PhD but Footnotes. So we'd like some questions from you guys. So if you have anything that you want to know about our experience on the job market or about what grad school is like, feel free to. Email us at, um,
1: damn it. Liz and Zine. I I was going to
0: say Zine and Liz. Liz and Zine, so there's no spaces. D Zine Z.
1: X-I-N-E. X- it's
0: going to be in, like, the little comment section. I should never be giving you details at the But please um, send us your question or go on our Facebook page. Um,
1: yeah, and we'll do a very short episode in between our longer weekly releases where we call the footnotes where we'll respond to you. Thank all you. Right. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you. See you next time.